0: Greetings everyone, I'm so glad I do not have to go down a line over here and place my hands on the foreheads of a lot of AIDS victims today. So glad I do not have to wade into this auditorium past a sea of waving placards from homosexuals. So glad that I am not meeting here today with a group of people who represent thousands of dissidents all over the country who take great issue with practically everything I believe. Of course I speak of the Pope from Rome visiting this country and those recalcitrant, dissident, potentially breakaway Catholics with whom he is having terrible problems in the United States, including many women who decry his insistence that a woman finds her fulfillment in the home in the God-given role of a female, as he sees in the Bible and as the Roman Catholic Church has always basically upheld, that he is also dealing with the problem of those people who call homosexuality merely an alternative lifestyle, those who claim AIDS is not really a dread scourge which perhaps in the next decade or so is going to rival. The more than 50 million human beings, fully half of the population of Europe and the British Isles have died in a short 16 years during the Middle Ages, and instead of it being some dread disease that has actually been foisted upon the heterosexual community by the homosexuals, it is something which allegedly afflicts us all. So they demonstrate every time the government talks about involuntary testing. They do not want that because they say it is discriminatory. Do we realize that the Pope from Rome is, as we meet here today, the singly most well-known, most important, most influential world leader who has ever been? Now think about that for a moment. More than one billion people know, love, revere and follow that man. How many people know, love, revere, and follow Ronald Reagan? How would you compare the Pope from Rome with Margaret Thatcher, with Helmut Kohl? I mean, these people are politicians who last four years or eight years and then they're gone. And, of course, most of us tend to be a little bit cynical about our politicians. All of us realize since the so-called Iran-gate, Iran controversy affair. That Ronald Reagan is in the waning years of a so-called lame duck presidency, and of course, even foreign leaders who are dealing with our administration, with regard to the arms limitation talks in Geneva and the visit of uh, Edouard Shevardnadze and the breakthrough, at least the agreement to agree on the removal of the intermediate-range ballistic missiles from European soil. Nevertheless, they know that they are dealing more with the Senate and the House and the American electorate than they are with Ronald Reagan, because they look at the terrible. Temporality and temporary duration or tenure of an elected official in office. The Pope is there for life. And because of instant communication, satellite telecommunication, believe it or not, he's more well-known than Jesus Christ. Think about it. There are not that many people in the world who have heard and understand and worship Jesus Christ this is a man who has the power to slap an interdiction, which is a massive national excommunication, on a nation the size of Argentina, if he so chooses. A man who, with little interferences, little subtle innuendos, a little encyclical or a papal bull, as they call it, and that's not an unfortunate term, it's actually a Catholic term used for a dogmatic statement, a circular letter, or a dogmatic decree issued by a Pope from Rome. So that if you had a particular head of state in a Catholic country, 98-99% Catholic like Chile, Argentina, all of the Central and South American countries, the nation of France, and if that world leader, if that despotic ruler of that country got crossways with the policies of the Roman Catholic Church, this has happened in history. The Roman Catholic Church can slap an interdiction on the entire country which says to them, all of whom believe in the idea of the immortality of the soul, that all of them are going to go to hell. And the only way they can get back in the good graces of the Papa, whom they call, quote, and it's blasphemy, holy, Father. And I say it that way in quotes and say it to make it sort of disjointed from me pronouncing it because to me it is blasphemy. There's nothing holy about that man, and he's not my father, and he's not yours, and he's not anybody else's because he's never had any kids. I'm a father, but I'm not holy. He's not even a father. Well, at least we know about but that's another subject. <laughs> I want to ask you a question by reading a scripture and ask you if you've ever thought of this before. I'm probably looking at an audience of people who basically believe in God. I don't think you're here because you're an atheist. And atheists generally are not entertained when I speak. I think you're here because you also believe in the written Word of God, that the Bible is very likely God's Word. At least you may suspect that it is. I doubt that there are people in here who deny that, like some of those on the Oprah Winfrey show. If we would turn to the 15th chapter of the book of Revelation, I want to read a couple of scriptures, perhaps ask you a question you may never have thought of in just this way. John, remembers being projected forward in time into a period called the Day of the Lord, and prior to that, the Great Tribulation, the heavenly signs. It really is the end time of the culmination of the plan and the program of God, which results in the outpouring of the seven last plagues and the second coming of Jesus Christ of Nazareth to this earth, and the establishment of the kingdom of God. And I saw another sign in heaven. John sees these things in symbol, in in perhaps analogies or similes or colorful signs, almost like watching in the mind's eye, a vivid, beautiful technicolor cinemascope motion picture. Great and marvelous. Seven seven angels, verse 1, having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. Now think about that for a moment. I've had people wrathful at me. I used to get crossways with my father, bless him, and he is now long since gone from this earth. He died a little over a year ago on January 16th. And I used to have problems from time to time, uh, institutionally and perhaps because of certain procedures, policies, especially fiscal and financial policies in the parent organization. I was always so uneasy, I was so uncomfortable, I was depressed and downcast, if I knew my dad was mad at me. If your wife is mad at you, you're very uncomfortable. Your husband is mad at you, you're very uneasy. Your children are upset with you. A child knows your dad is really mad, and I'm, you kids go to bed, and I'm going to tell him what you did when he gets home at 5 o'clock. You lie there all afternoon and lasts for a month, you know, from 3 to 5, waiting for Dad to get home. There's nothing to make you more uneasy than someone in a position of authority or someone whom you love who is wrathful toward you. In the book of Hebrews, it says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, God is so great, he's so powerful, that all he's got to do is just zap somebody like Uzzah, who essayed to steady the ark when the ark could quite take care of itself because it represented the very throne of God. And because oxen stumbled and a man tried to steady the ark being carried and turned along on an ox cart, he was struck dead on the spot. How would you like to have God wrathful and angry, I mean mad at you? where he just had it finally. Now these vials, like smoking green vials of some noxious chemical mixture emitting a kind of a popping, fizzing, gaseous material, are viewed in this prophecy in the 16th as well as the 15th chapter. You see the vials being poured out in 16 verses 1 and 2 as the outpouring of the wrath of God, which is described as being poured out without admixture, without any kind of dilution. Because in them it says, is fulfilled or consummated, verse 1, filled up. The wrath of God. I once saw a bumper sticker. I can't repeat it because it was using very unfortunate language. But it said there's good news and bad news. Jesus is coming, but oh boy is he mad. Now it was a very unfortunate way that it put it, and I would never repeat that. But it is in fact the truth from Matthew, the 24th chapter, that there is good news and bad news. The gospel is good news, yes, that Christ is going to come, but the bad news is, Almighty God is wrathful against sinning, wretched mankind. I live in a largely retirement community. Recently, some of my neighbors moved back into town. Her name is Nancy Greer, lovely 19-year-old daughter. Well, the two families were meeting at a restaurant newly opened up in Tyler, I believe three nights ago on perhaps Wednesday night or so. And when they separated and went to their cars in a parking lot, a man jumped out of the shadows and grabbed Nancy's daughter and forced her to drive away in the car toward Canton out on a highway that I go back and forth all the time on. They found her later on near death, stabbed about nine times, and her throat dashed barely missing missing the jugular, so that she was still alive, and I believe, unless she has died since I heard, was in critical condition in the hospital, rape, attempted murder, merely a young lady going to her car from a dinner with her parents in a parking lot. What do you think ought to be done to that man? Well, I won't belabor the issue. I'm very familiar with what sin is. I'm familiar with what Almighty God says about homosexuality and as a pope from Rome stood for what Almighty God says instead of the expediency of a church which is trying to balance all the dissidents and satisfy everybody and play both ends against the middle and appeal to the pagans and the Gentiles, a very conceivable race, and try to kind of homogenize and amalgamate the religion of the Roman Catholic Church to make it appeal to all races and all nations at all times down through history. He would make a powerful stand and simply stand there and say, you homosexuals, unless you repent, are going to burn in Gehenna fire. But the Pope of Rome won't do that, because he's a politician, because he must be expedient. But I'll do that, because any rotten queer is going to burn in Gehenna fire. And I don't care who doesn't like me to say that. Almighty God said it in the first chapter of the book of Romans. He shows you what he thinks about homosexuality when you read about what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. That was like a nuclear explosion. No, I don't want God wrathful at me. I don't think you do either. I don't want to incur God's wrath. David prayed, Rebuke me, correct me, O Eternal, but not in thine anger, lest you bring me to nothing. But he said, it will be a kindness, smite me, it will be like oil running down over my head. That's right, because God says in the 12th chapter of the book of Hebrews, he chastiseth every son which he loves. And what son is there whom the father chastises not? If you love your son, you correct him. The world says, no, if you love him, you don't correct him. God says, no, if you love him, you correct him. Because you wish to deter him from doing that which is going to be wrong for him which is going to injure or cripple or perhaps take his life. And so God corrects us in his loving kindness, but not in his wrath or in his anger. And I saw, going on in this vision, verse 2, as it were a sea of glass, now that's like a translucent crystal and material before the throne of God, mingled with fire, as if polished agate that you can almost see through. And then that had gotten the victory over the beast And over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, stand on the sea of glass, that's before the throne of God, having the hearts of God, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty, just and true are thy ways, you King of saints. And of course, obviously, these are the resurrected saints. They include the patriarchs, they include David mentioned in the 30th chapter of the book of Jeremiah as being resurrected to rule over a throne of all of Israel in the millennial kingdom of Christ. It includes Abraham and Isaac and Jacob whom Jesus said of the Pharisees, You will see Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of God and you yourselves cast out. This is a picture of all the saints who are to be resurrected from their graves, 1 Corinthians 15, 50-52, 1 Thessalonians 4.17 at the time of the second coming of Jesus Christ and it includes the living last generation 1 Corinthians 15.52 who will be changed quote in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we who are alive shall be changed what I'm trying to get across is this biblical description of these people is not a little cadre of people that you don't know. It is not a group of people from Ravenna, Italy, that you haven't met yet. It is not a group of Frenchmen, or a group of people in New Jersey, who have a special spiritual task to accomplish. Men that have, quote, gotten the victory over the beast, over his image, over his mark and over the number of his name are not some other group. It is you. And you've never thought of it in that way. And many of you don't know who is the beast. And many of you do not know what is his image. And many of you do not know what is his mark or the number of his name. Many people know it's 666, but they don't know where to look for it, where to find it how to identify it. How can you be described if you are to stand on that translucent sea of glass before the throne of the descending Christ and to inherit eternal life, salvation, by receiving Christ as your Savior and living a life of overcoming by the power of God's Holy Spirit? How can you be described as one who has gotten the victory over the beast? If you don't know who the beast is, Gotten the victory over his image, if you don't know what is his image. Gotten the victory over his mark, if you can't identify his mark. I've mentioned in many sermons that there's a lot of cheap, trashy literature that masquerades for spiritual information that I found in my post office box, alleging that the mark of the beast are the striations on a plastic wrapper in which I find saltine crackers that I check out through my supermarket checking stand. Or it is my plastic credit card in my hip pocket or it is a microchip that they're going to implant under the skin of my forehead so they can pass me through a computer and identify me and get every bit of records that they have in Big Brother's computer over there in Belgium or Washington, D.C. and even as you sit here, look around the corners because those may be hidden cameras watching what you are doing. You know, there are t-shirts that say, RUN! THE PARANOIDS ARE COMING! which is a kind of a, a double entendre, you know. But there are a lot of people who believe all that nonsense. There are enough coops, weirdos, dinglings, and addleheads in this world who go absolutely crazy on theoretical religion to people bedlam, and probably the entire nation of Norway if the truth were known. Let me tell you something. In the sixth chapter of the book of Revelation, when it reveals the fifth of those various seals that are opened up, and the fifth. 1, prior to the heavenly signs, is the religious martyrdom phase of the great tribulation that Jesus prophesied in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21. John sees, figuratively, the lives of dead people who are crying out from the ground, just like in the very first few chapters of Genesis, God said to Cain, your brother's blood cries to me from the ground. Now blood doesn't have a mouth, and blood doesn't make a noise, it's merely a metaphor for the spilled blood of the very first murder victim in human experience, when Cain killed his own brother, and God said, His blood cries to me from the ground. In that vision, in the sixth chapter of Revelation, John sees all of those who were slain under an altar, and they are pictured, all of these that go way back to the day of the patriarchs, Those that were spoken of by Jesus, Zacharias, whom you slew between the porch and the altar when he condemned the Pharisees in Matthew, the 23rd chapter. It includes all those during the Spanish Inquisition, those during the days of Hadrian and Trajan and Nero and all the Caesars, who took so many hundreds of millions of lives down through history. It includes people who are listed in the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews who were butchered, sawn asunder, impaled, burnt at the stake. It includes every martyr who has ever lived and died, and every person who died of natural causes, who was an individual who had to fight the battle, it is called a daily warfare, in the words of the Apostle Paul, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty to the pulling down of strongholds, mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, and the weapons of our warfare that are listed in Ephesians, the sixth chapter that is a part of the very shield, the Church of God International, the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith, the sword of the Spirit. And even as a good soldier, Jesus Christ told Paul to Timothy about the warfare that we are waging. So here, all of these lies who are saying, how long, O eternal, holy, righteous, and true Dost thou not avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And it was told them, all of these saints, countless tens, hundreds of thousands of them, that they must rest a little season until their fellow servants must also be killed, listen, as they were. Now, let's turn to the 16th chapter of the book of Revelation, the first couple of verses. I heard a great voice out of the temple saying to the seven angels, Go your ways and pour out your vials of the wrath of God upon the earth. And the first went and poured out his vial upon the earth, and there fell a noisome and grievous sore, like a weeping boil or a carbuncle, upon the men which had the mark of the beast, and upon them which worship his image. Here are the two opposite groups. A group of people standing on the sea of glass, described as those who have received salvation, who had, quote, gotten the victory over the beast, his image, his mark, and the number of his men. And on the opposite hand, those who suffer the wrath of God in the seven last plagues because they have received the mark of the beast and worshiped the beast and worshiped his image. Well, then. The mark of the beast is not something which can be forced upon you, is it? But millions of Americans think it is, because they believe the stupidity of self-appointed would-be prophets and teachers who tell them that that's what it is. It is an indelible tattoo on your hand, they say, on your right hand, because it says it's the right hand, doesn't it? Sixteenth chapter of Revelation. And it's a number 666 you find on your credit card, isn't it? It's a big computer over in Belgium, isn't it? It's the Pentagon or the CIA, isn't it? The beast is America, some people think. The stupidity of would-be self-appointed prophets and teachers is enormous. And the penalty that is going to come on those people according to the word of God is also enormous. Biblical scholarship is very, very universally agreed on the identity of the beasts that are depicted in the fourth chapters and the seventh chapters of the book of Daniel. The second chapter of the book of Daniel, let me remind you quickly of the great image that was seen in the plain Shinar by Nebuchadnezzar whose tormented dreams caused him to go to Daniel, one of the princes of Israel. Daniel then who told him the interpretation and the dream and Rawlinson's five great empires and Rawlinson's history as well as many other sources which you can look into in the in commentaries including the critical and experimental by Jameson, Fawcett and Brown, Clark's commentary, even the Seventh-day Adventist commentary, so many others including even the Catholic Encyclopedia prior to the so-called Holy Roman Empire. When they are dealing with the ancient pagan Roman Empire, they're fairly accurate. When they're dealing with ancient history of Babylon, Persia, Greco-Macedonia, and ancient Rome prior to the time of about 54 A.D. and thereafter, they're fairly accurate. Once they start dealing with Rome this side of the Apostle Peter, they are very inaccurate, and you can demonstrate that as well. My point is that profane history clearly points out that the four successive world ruling empires, beginning with Nebuchadnezzar, then Cyrus the Great and Darius the Mede, and then Alexander and the Greco-Macedonian kingdom, his death caused it to divide four ways, all depicted in the seventh chapter of the Book of Daniel by the various four princes that went each way: Laomedon and Ptolemy Soter. Seleucus Nicator, who named the city of Laodicea after his wife Laodicea, where a famous council was held in 325 AD. And finally, the Roman Empire that came along and continued to 476, when it received the deadly wound that is mentioned in the 13th chapter of Revelation, which was healed in 553 to 554 by Belisarius at the behest of Emperor Justinian, who was quite a man, quite an intellect. And you read about his life, it is really quite fascinating. Belisarius went to Carthage, attacked some of the southern and the central provinces of Italy, all the way up to Ravenna and beyond, into the Po River Valley, and actually kicked out the Ostrogothic king from Rome and effected a reconciliation of the empire, which was a revival, the healing of the deadly wound, because for successive years, from 476 to 553 and 4, other pagans, including gothics, had sat on the throne at Rome and the Roman Empire had drifted into complete disintegration. Biblical history, the book of Revelation and the book of Daniel, fit hand in glove. They mesh together like perfect fitting gears, and all the Bible scholars concur. There are not those who disagree about the meaning of the head of gold, because it says in the second chapter of Daniel, It is thou, O king. Thou art this head of gold in the great image. And the chest of silver and the belly and the thighs of brass were Cyrus and then Greco-Macedonia and the feet and the toes, part of iron and part of miry clay were representative of the Roman Empire which is to have seven successive resurrections down through history. And it says in verse 44, In the day of these kings, represented by the ten toes, shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall destroy and break in pieces all these kingdoms, and it, the kingdom of God, shall stand forever. In the vision, Nebuchadnezzar saw a symbolic chunk of rock, cut out of a great mountain, hurled down to the earth almost like a meteor, trailing sparks through the universe, smashing the image on its toes. It toppled and fell, disintegrated into dust. That stone seemed to glow and grow and become huge, and before his eyes, it looked as big as Haramon, and he said it became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And that was his dream. And you can read it in the history books and the encyclopedias, the biblical encyclopedias, Kitto, Critical and Experimental, as I said, and all the others. Encyclopedia biblical, they all admit. To the meaning of those four successive world-ruling empires. Finally, along came Rome. And according to the Word of God, it was to have seven successive revivals and is to experience an end time resurrection now we turn to the 17th chapter of Revelation right quickly and take a look at that in the 17th chapter he sees a great waddling old madam called a great whore chapter uh, 17 verse 1 there came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials and talked with me saying come hither and I will show unto you the judgment of the great whore that sits over many waters now the sea And great waters are always used symbolically in the book of Revelation as multitudes of people, like people talk about a sea of faces. It's a multitude of nations with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, a great false church, a great waddling old fat whore who has committed intercourse, in this case social, but there is more perhaps implied, with kings of the earth and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. That's reference to false doctrine, which causes you to stagger, as Isaiah said. Stagger and put out your hand like the blind to the wall, because it's like dark in the middle of the noonday, and my people do not see and do not understand. So they have been made drunk, spiritually drunk, with the wine, Greek word oinos, of her. Fornication with her licentious admixture of political and religious doctrine and doctrines of expediency would have to do with intercourse between a great church and not one but many, many kings or monarchs or leaders, prime ministers, premiers, presidents, leaders of nations. And by the way, just in passing, the word oinos is the only word used in the New Testament Greek for wine. Wine. It's always translated wine. Same word used in the case of Jesus' first miracle of turning water into oinos. You can demonstrate that in the dialogue the interlinear, Thayer's Greek, Strong's Concordance, strong any other source to which you would like to go. I'm only saying that in passing because Baptists will not admit that. But that's their problem, not mine. You cannot get drunk on grape juice. This does not say, have been made drunk with the grape juice of for fornication. It says, drunk with the oinos. The only word ever used in the New Testament shows enough of that stuff will get you drunk. The point is, God says, don't drink that much of it. Just partake of anything like that in moderation. So He carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy. Now, what would those be? We can think of a few, perhaps. Having seven heads, there were seven successive revivals and ten horns. I want to skip ahead to verse 12 right quick, keep your place, we'll come back. And the ten horns which you saw are ten kings, so we're not left in doubt, we don't need to guess, you don't need my interpretation, the Bible interprets itself. What are these ten horns? On the head of this mysterious beast which is guided and which is ridden by a fat waddling old madam who has intercourse with all the kings of the earth and has a spiritual doctrine which makes people spiritually drunk. Well. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet, but received power as kings, one hour, very short time in world history, with the beast. These have one mind and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. Now remember we read the description of the saints, and that's you and me. And the description is those who have gotten the victory over the beast. If you don't know who the beast is, what to watch for, what to look for, what to be aware of, what to avoid, how can you get the victory over something you know nothing about? Millions of Americans think they're on the road to salvation. They can't tell you who is the beast. They don't know. They know nothing about the history of these great empires that I'm talking about. They know nothing about Daniel 2, 4, and 7, and Revelation 13 and 17. They're just ignorant. And what you don't know, well, you don't know that you don't know it. So you're just blissfully happy. I don't know something. But if you don't know it, you're not discommoded, dis- you're not uncomfortable, you're not going around, I don't know something. Your mind is just unaware of the fact that you don't know it. And that's what God talks about when he talks about the wine of her fornication making people drunk, when he talks about blinders over their eyes, when he talks about deception, because Jesus very plainly said, Many shall come in my name, saying unto Christ, and shall deceive many. So it tells us in the Bible what the beast is. The beast was Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. It was superseded by Cyrus's kingdom. It was superseded by Greco-Macedonia under Alexander. It was superseded by ancient Rome. And that has always been the meaning of the beast, but it tells us very clearly that in the time just barely prior to the second coming of Christ, notice it, there is to come a resurrection. The ten toes exist, Daniel 2.44, when? In the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom. In the days of the second coming of Christ. The ten horns exist when? Reading the Bible. Verse 14. These shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and king of kings. Millions of Protestants see Christ coming to whisk away people in a rapture. They do not say to see Jesus Christ coming as a conquering king to wage war and to pour out the seven last plagues in which is consummated the wrath of God without admixture on those who worship the beast and his image. There's no issue at stake in the minds of people involving salvation. It's just, I want to get salvation for me. So I receive Christ, I accept him, I make him mine. I am his and he is mine. I had this little household Jesus over there Keeping quiet most of the time, but a few times on uh, of the year, I, I creep into church and touch all the bases just to make sure I'm safe. You know, a lot of people do that on Eastern Christmas. Go to church, make sure they're in God's good graces. They have a kind of a household of God, but so far as their daily way of life and the way that they are living their lives, they are not in awe. Certainly not in godly fear. And Jesus Christ is not their boss. He isn't their master. He's not their lord, he's not their ruler to whom they say, Yes, sir, I'll do what you tell me. But he is a quiet, kind of halfway effeminate, long dead fellow that you might not really want to invite to dinner. I mean if he walked over there in a white robe, you know, with a halo and the shepherd's crook and that funny look on his face and the long ringlets down his back, you've got to sit there at dinner and say, What'd you like? you know, prime rib. I mean, most people are just not gonna say, Guess who I've invited to dinner? Because most people, when you really get down to it, when they have a figment in their imagination that the world and its artists have portrayed as Jesus Christ of the Bible, they don't even know the real Jesus Christ, which is why I wrote that book years ago, to introduce them to the real Jesus, who really was a man, and walked this earth, and moved timbers and stones, and did site preparation, and erected stone warehouses and sheds and barns and houses, and owned two homes and paid his taxes, and had calluses on his hands and was the kind of a man that you would have enjoyed walking and talking with. He was a man. Little kids in Sunday school, we can tell them, you know, teachers can tell them about Samson. They can dig that. He pulled in the temple, he was blinded, and he destroyed all those people. David, slingshot, you know, wham, giant falls down, cut off his head, drag him up there to Saul, marry the king's daughter. That's something these kids can dig. They can understand that. David, I like. Jesus? I mean, even Noah—he gathered a giraffe. You can see him sticking out the top of the ark. They always portray him that way. No room to get the gir- gir- giraffe. I'm sorry, giraffe indoors. They had to, you know, a hatch in the ark so the giraffes are looking around. And the kids love that. They can identify with Noah, the heroes of the Bible. They can identify with, especially if they killed a lot of people. Now, the Sunday school teachers tell them about Goliath, but they don't tell them about the extra 100 forestiers And I'm not going to belabor that. But if you will read the story of how it was that David won the hand of the fair maiden, who was the daughter of Saul, you'll find that Saul said, go out and collect 100 from the Philistines, that he didn't take them willingly. But it's another story. But it's easy for Sunday school teachers to uh, get them to look like heroes, but when they come to this, Jesus they talk about. It's not that easy to get these little kids playing marbles in a playground at grade school to really kind of dig, as they say in modern parlance, Jesus. Because he tells them to turn the other cheek. He doesn't say to fight the neighborhood bully. He doesn't say when he gets sand kicked in your face to fight off for a child, that was coarse, and then beat up on the bully. He says just let him kick sand in your face. And so the little kids, and I think the Sunday school teachers, have a problem with that. Well the real Jesus Christ of Nazareth, it says in the word of God, is coming as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and is coming, believe it or not, to wage war. Yet there are millions of Catholics and Protestants who kind of think vaguely about the end of the world, but basically they're not concerned about that because they believe in the doctrine of the immortality of the soul, which says that when they die, their soul goes off either to Limbus Picturum or Limbus infantum, or perhaps somewhere in purgatory to wander until your relatives pay the other most farther to get you out, or perhaps to the beatific vision to be right there in the adoring glance of the Master in heaven above. And the Protestants believe like doctrines. Now let me be specific. The image of the beast that is depicted in the 13th chapter of Revelation is a shadow or an image, a counterpart, a replica, a counterfeit of the beast. And what was the beast? The beast was all those ancient old civil kingdoms culminating in Rome. And the ancient Roman government was constructed in a pyramid form and in a hierarchical structure from the top down. The ancient emperors of Rome took divine titles. They called themselves gods. Their subjects referred to them as, quote, divinity, in quote. Some of them actually had little vials where they kept their cheers, which were supposed to be holy. And some of them were the most depraved, bestial, perverted, twisted, demented, rotten human beings that have ever had the misfortune to walk this earth, who took the lives of countless hundreds of thousands. And men bowed and kissed their feet and kissed their rings and called them holy. Long before the so-called Christianizing of the Holy Roman Empire, the ancient Roman Empire, the emperors called themselves gods. It is a very long story that deserves many, many books, but let me just tell you that I'm trying to finish as rapidly as I can a rather extensive book entitled The Mark of the Beast. Before I finish that, I would like you to read the beast, which we have copies of here, perhaps enough for every one of you if you don't have it. Who, what is the beast? You need to know, if you are an individual who is to be getting the victory over the beast, his image, the mark, and the number of his name, you might need to know who you're fighting. When it says that he was to make an image under the beast, which is a shadow or a replica of the beast, believe it or not, the emerging church of the 2nd and the 3rd century which became known as the universal or the Catholic, and that's all the word Catholic means. The Catholicity of the Scriptures. They talk about the Catholic epistles. Doesn't mean the Catholic Church owns them, they were universally directed to the Church as a whole, rather than just perhaps Thessalonica or Rome or Colossae or somewhere else. And so James and First and Second Peter and First Second Third John are called the so called Catholic, meaning universally addressed to all the church epistles. So you see at the emergence of the second century, after the death of Polycarp, long after John has died at about 92 or 93 AD on the Isle of Patmos, after a blackout in world history where there are no writers extant, where there are so few people documenting what happened in the church because of the invasion of Palestine and the sacking of Jerusalem under the armies of Titus. You have Josephus and his testimony. He was born in 37 A.D. and died in 101 A.D. And, of course, his testimony is very, very important. He alone is the man who claims that the high priest heard an audible voice on the day of atonement prior to the advance of the arms of Titus and told them audibly, you're to flee and to get out of here, That many of them listened and took it to heart. Most of them did not. Titus came in and sacked the city and impaled tens of thousands of Jews, and the rest of them fled to Pella and escaped with their lives. We are indebted to Josephus for the little bit that we know about that entire period that is like a lost century in world history. By the emergence of the 3rd century, the 2nd century is completely blocked out, the curtain parts, and we see a church in the fragments of the so-called anti-Nicene, meaning the pre-council of Nicaea, fathers, quote-unquote, an er erroneous term, by Justin Martyr and Eusebius and Arnobius and some of the others who wrote and I have a complete collection of them in the English translation of my home and we see a church which in all respects is completely different from the church that disappeared in history at the conclusion of the first century. If there is any Sunday-keeping person in this room who is not a coward I challenge you to write for a book that I did not write, which is written by a man named Samuele Bacciochi, who is the only non-Catholic to ever graduate from the Vatican University, and have access to the Vatican Museum and all of its records, and has written perhaps, well not perhaps, I just take the word perhaps out, the most thoroughly documented, technically complete book on the subject of how the Roman Catholic Church changed from the day of the Sabbath to the day of the sun and eventually through force of arms forced it upon the entire Roman world over a period of centuries. How it did not die out quickly, all the way to the Council of Whitby in 664, clear down to a council in England in the 8th century A.D. There were those who were called quarto decimans who still clung to the observance of the Passover on the 14th of Nisan. The Council of Nicaea started it all in 325 A.D., called by Constantine, who was a formerly avowed sun worshiper. The Council of Laodicea, there are differing dates, some of them agree 441, some say as early as 3 in the 330s but that can be decided later. It's not important. The point is that the canons that came out of that particular council, covered in Hapley's church councils, prove there is a quotation in Samueli Bacciochi's book called From Saturday to Sunday. The name of the book is From Saturday to Sunday. If you'll write to me, I'll tell you where you can write to the author. I have, Mr. Bart has his copy. We have copies in the office. The author will give you a copy. He does charge for it. I've never met the man. I don't know the man but he has documented from the earliest fragments and the codices and the records and the encyclicals and circular letters and decrees of those ancient councils in the first few centuries how the Roman Catholic Church forced Sunday observance upon its adherents, and how it is that the Protestant daughters who have come out of the Roman Catholic Church have retained the very same customs. Well, it doesn't fit into this world. It does not fit into people's lives in this world today but it's documented and if people are not cowardly about discovering the real truth if they're really serious then they would want to be able to cram those words down my throat they would want me to eat those words they would want to show me why I can prove to you from the Bible that Sunday is the day we ought to observe in commemoration of the resurrection. And I can prove to you from the Bible that Christ was not resurrected on Sunday. And you can read Matthew 12, 43 days and three nights, and you cannot fit three days and three nights from Good Friday sunset to Easter Sunday morning. You can't make it work. And history does not substantiate it. But that's another subject. But the point is that by the first few centuries after the resurrection of Christ, that emerging church which had been constructed along the line of local elders who were called bishops, who then elected a major bishop in a larger city who was called a metropolitan, which eventually devolved down to five leading the leading and the greater populated cities, including Antioch in Syria, Alexandria, Constantinople, and Rome, as well as Babylon, some of the other cities where there were large, and Carthage was one of them, where there were large contingents of so-called Christians. Another vote was taken at the end of the meeting, and the vote was something like 498 to 2, in favor of papal infallibility, that when that man spoke from the so-called Holy See, couldn't make a mistake in doctrine or custom to be enjoined upon the Church. Historically documented, Samuelis Bacciochi's book is, is incredible, When you read it, every one of the footnotes, every line, every paragraph, you want to underline because it is so electrifying in what it says about the creation of nothing more than the image of the beast. It has the collegium. It has the curia, It has its ecclesiastic at the uttermost pinnacle of power who is in power over all the other clerics. It is organized according to the great archdiocese and the great diocese. And the great diocese was one of the trappings of ancient Rome. And the college or the collegia of Rome was one of the trappings of Rome. The governmental system is exactly the same. It says in the word of God, He, that is this image which is lamb-like in the 13th chapter of Revelation, the second beast of Revelation 13, but has horns like a dragon and speaks, I'm sorry, has horns like a lamb and speaks like a dragon appears to be lamb-like or Christ-like, but speaks like a dragon, quote, of that all who would not worship the image of the beast should be put to death." Machiavelli's book shows time and again how so-called Holy Roman Emperors and the folks at Rome used the civil power of the police to torture and to put people to death in order to force those observances upon wayward portions of the Roman Catholic Church. It is documented. It is history. Brethren and ladies and gentlemen, the proof that that great church has forced Sunday keeping by the sword upon millions is absolutely graphically documented. You cannot read that book and disbelieve it. And that book, why Roman Catholics themselves agree and admit that it is true, because you see, they do not believe just in the Bible and its efficacy. They believe in the so-called fathers of the Roman Church, they believe in the Bible, and they believe in the Pope, but the Pope is up here, and the Bible is down here, together with the so-called fathers in their writings. The Bible is not their authority, the Pope is their authority, and the Pope has the power to supersede the Bible. So they cheerfully admit that Bacciochi's book is a scholarly book. It has openings, it has forewords, it has praises written in it by Roman Catholics. They're not a bit ashamed about all the information he unearthed. It's a very scholarly work. Who ought to be ashamed of some of the Protestant daughters who came out in protest but kept everything from the Apostles' Creed to the doxology to the Trinity to the immortality of the soul to the heaven and hell doctrine? to Christmas and the date called Ishtar or Ashtaroth or Astarte, which is pronounced Easter now as then, with its symbols of date, rabbits and eggs of lilies, which the pagans thought looked like sexual intercourse in progress. All the trappings are the same. And here is this great image, which is actually going to mount and to ride a beast, And that beast is emerging even now inside of Europe, and the accommodations being made between the superpowers involving the dismantling of intermediate-range ballistic missiles is going to eventually mean the recalling of tens of thousands of American soldiers from European soil, of the withdrawal of the United States from any involvement in the foreign affairs of Europe and other countries, with which some economists are going to say they can solve the deficits in one presidential decision backed by Congress. It is going to result in new security arrangements between, first of all, the Franco-German alliance, which is already in the offing. It's going to result in some of the Eastern European countries, notably Poland. The Pope is Polish, and I've talked to that since 1978, coming out from underneath the domination of the Soviet Union and uniting together with five of the nations in the eastern part and five in the western part. Why do you suppose there are five toes on each one of the legs in the ancient and it seen so long ago? And who is going to give it his good offices? And who is going to give it that clay which is not mixed with iron? There is only one church in the world that is called the Mother. And there's only one nation in the world that is called fatherland. And it will be an unholy marriage. And it reminds me of a limerick so long ago. There was an old lady from Major who smiled as she rode on a tiger. They returned from the ride with the lady inside and they smile on the face of the tiger. It says in the 18th chapter of the book of Revelation that the beast shall hate the whore and make her desolate. And you read that eventually the civil authority turns on this image of the beast and destroys it just before the time of the second coming of Christ. But prior to that time, That great system is going to put countless hundreds of thousands of people to death. And that may include me. So far I've had four people get up and walk out. They don't like it very much. The word of God's pretty hard for some people to stand. That's all right. It's not meant as Christian entertainment. It is meant as a witness and a warning. And if you understood what is the message of the latter-day servants of Almighty God, of turning the hearts of the children of Israel to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the fathers, instead of the idea of repairing damage to families. You would understand more completely what must be the message of God's end time church organization and indeed the two witnesses who will go before the beast and the false prophet when they move the Vatican and its headquarters to Jerusalem and to proclaim a message in this future day just like Moses and Aaron Let my people go. What do you suppose is going to happen to recalcitrant Catholics who are Americans when a United States of Europe emerges and goes to war against the United States of America? Do you think they will be given some kind of special protection? I tell you no. They will be massacred just as their brethren were massacred in the Middle Ages. You don't get away with crossing the Pope for very long. In the 18th chapter of the book of Revelation it says this in verse 3. All nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, and of the kings of the earth they have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth are waxed rich with the abundance of her delicacies, and there is coming a tremendous resurgence inside central Europe, which is going to be the biggest thing the Europeans have ever seen. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people! that you be not partakers of her sins, and that you receive not of her plagues. When you read Isaiah 47, of the great woman that is called the lady of the kingdoms, that says, I shall not know either widowhood, meaning the loss of the fatherland and the unholy alliance, or the loss of children, because there were daughters depicted who came out of her. It is said in verse 5 of Revelation 17, she had a name on her forehead written, Mystery, it is a mystery religion. Spoken in Latin, a foreign tongue, the mystery of the Eucharist, mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and abominations of the earth. There were daughters that came out protesting, they still protest, and they are still daughters. And there are millions of them who revere that man. He is the most popular human being on the face of this earth who has ever lived. Think of it. He is a bigger political personality than any human being who has ever walked the earth. He has more power to influence the course of world affairs than any world leader who has ever been alive. Carol Wojtina, Pope John Paul II, from Rome, visiting the United States of America. You think you're not living in the time of the end? in the offing of great events. I tell you, the last chapter of European history has not been written. And the last chapter of American history has not been written. We are heading toward isolationism. We are heading toward economic collapse. We are heading toward the impoverishment of the American people. We are heading toward very hard, tough times. New power blocks, new security arrangements, new multi and sometimes bilateral security agreements in Europe and elsewhere. We are headed toward another war in the Middle East involving Israel. Eventually, we're headed toward some group somewhere building either a temple or dedicating the corner of a sacred place and beginning sacrifices in Jerusalem. We are headed toward a time when it is imminent destruction out of a threat of Arabs finally succeeding in doing what they've been trying to do since 1948 and throw the Jews into the sea. The Pope will have to go and to effect what he's called for for ten years a corpus separatum or an international city of Jerusalem and actually ensconce himself in that city For the Bible says great miracles will occur so that he will have power to call down fire from heaven on earth in the sight of men to deceive all them that worship the beast and who worship His image, and who receive His mark. The stamp, the sign, or the mark of God on God's people is revealed in the 31st chapter of Exodus. My Sabbaths shall ye keep, for it is a sign between me and thee. Throughout your generations, forever, saith the Eternal, I change not, therefore are you sons of Jacob not consumed, said Almighty God. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever, said Paul in the book of Hebrews of Jesus Christ. And who was the God of the Old Testament? Hebrews 1 and John 1, the one member of that Elohim who became Jesus Christ of the new. Therefore, in the fourth chapter of Hebrews, there remaineth a keeping of the Sabbath. The Greek word is sabbatismos, present progressive. A keeping of the Sabbath under the people of God is a shadow of the millennial rest. It looks back to creation. It looks forward to the seventh to one thousand year plan or program of God. The annual holy days that come around seasonally, that develop and show and unfold every year the plan and the purpose and the program of God, what he's doing on this earth. What does the day of the sun illustrate to you? What does his star with bunnies and eggs illustrate to you? What the so-called Mass of Christ or Christ Mass or Christmas with its little trees supposed to represent Kamas or Nimrod who sprung out of a dead Yule log overnight, and the tree worshippers of the ancient Druids in the Nordics, and those who worship beneath groves and worship Baal at Ashtaroth or the upright pales that they made in groves of oak trees back during the days of the prophets. That same old Babylonish mystery system is alive and well. And millions of our people, Israel if you knew, go off every day of the sun into an arch over which there is an impudent symbol, which stands for the same thing Cleopatra's needle stood for, and that impudent obelisk with the funny looking little cross on the top of it right in the middle of the Vatican Square. And it stands for the same thing as did an ancient Asherah, an upright pail an infinite phallic symbol, a symbol of Tammuz and Nimrod, a symbol of the sun god. Millions do not know that they might as well say, all ye who enter here, leave your spiritual virginity behind because you're having concourse with the great whore and you are receiving and accepting every single week the mark of the beast and you're worshipping at his image and you will eventually find out that you will receive the number of his name. If you do not know what is the image of the beast, what is his mark, how to avoid it, what to look for, how can you be described as one who has, quote, gotten the victory over the image of the beast and over his mark and the number of his name. I hope you all want to read that book when I'm through with it. Another book I want to recommend to you in closing. In God's Name, by David A. Yellow. Four months on the New York Times bestseller list. Full title, An Investigation into the Murder of Pope John Paul I. 32 pages of, po- of photographs. The story about the Vatican Bank, of how John Paul I was going to fire about five leading figures, including Cardinal Cody of Chicago. How the police report... In Rome, in the Vatican said, dead Pope John Paul I, Cause, unknown. Shocking book. An incredible book. And its author, remarkably, still alive. But when you see the trail of bodies in that book, it will, as they say, blow your mind. Yes, the people in the latter-day generation are going to see an end time martyrdom of saints do you think it's going to come because you simply disagree on some doctrine or another or because you believe in the word of God and perhaps like me might be an observer of God's true Sabbath day I have no doubt this sermon could cost me my life in many countries by the dozens I could mention to you I could get killed for what I just told you here today and I have no doubt that someday I will be killed for saying things just like this, which I will continue to say, regardless as to the ultimate outcome. But I'm telling you, we are living in a time of the end, a time when people are going to have to make a decision, are going to have to get the proof, and quit stumbling over the truth and brushing themselves off and hurrying away as if nothing had happened. Quit getting up because they don't like what I'm saying, walking out of a meeting as about four people did when I started talking about Sunday and the Sabbath and the daughters of the great harlot. It's hard to take, I know, but it happens to be the truth of Almighty God if you've got the courage to accept it. Well, I certainly thank you all for coming. I am not in the business of religious entertainment. I never have been. And I do believe that we have a message to give the world, and it's a very many-faceted message. Yes, many times I talk about Christian living, and about families, and about crime, and about pollution, and the environment, and about concerns of us all. And many times I'm talking specifically about prophecy in the coming United States of Europe. And sometimes I'm talking about the annual holy days of the weekly Sabbath or the doctrine of the immortality of the soul because there's an awful lot of, of falsehood and there are a lot of areas that you can kind of cheek away at to try to find the cracks so people will say, well, I never knew that or I've never thought of that or, well, I can't believe that or, well, that's new to me. So you get people to give you yes answers instead of just trying to tell them everything all at once. I realize this is tough stuff I gave you here today. It's not for children. It's hard. Strong meat. May God give you the courage to look into it further and to accept it if you prove it true. Well, I'm going to to echo the words of Mr. Gross that certainly I hope all of you will look in on the local church services if you live nearby where you can and talk to Mr. Cole. Or his son, Charles Pope, both of whom are ordained ministers in this region, and of course they have a meeting every Sabbath, and they have a regular church service with a sermon and songs and refreshments, and people have good fellowship. And as I've always said, you are more than welcome. We invite you. More than that, we urge you to please come. But we tell you, don't check your brains at the door. You do not give up your personal sovereignty if you decide to visit. You don't compromise yourself. You're still your own person, your own man, your own woman. You walk out of there with your your, your uh, head held high in the air, and you are not in any way our property. We don't own you. We're not going to exploit you. You just muse over what you've heard, study it, think about it, take a look at the kind of people who meet here and see if they look like a bunch of weirdos or not, and uh, enjoy fellowship with them. We would love to have you do that. By the way, coming up in a very short period of time, maybe Charlie can tell you about that, we have the Feast of Tabernacles out here at Waggoner on a beautiful lake, where there's a Western Hills resort, and I hope to be there in the Middle of the East for at least one message, and it'd be really a delight to have any of you who would like to visit get over there especially for that and any other days that you would like. It's a beautiful resort area and not that much of a drive from here. Well, thank you for paying attention and all of you who stayed and didn't walk out. God bless you for being here. It's been a pleasure for me.